This is episode 268 of That Shakespeare Life. Just like the work of William Shakespeare, That Shakespeare Life is powered by our patrons. Help support our show, contribute directly to programming, and get access to a library of bonus Shakespeare content, including over 150 additional episodes of our show, not available on public listing platforms, all when you join us on Patreon today at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare Life. That's patreon.com slash that Shakespeare Life. Hi, I'm Dr. Neil McIntyre of the University of Glasgow. Another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend Cassidy Cash. Laws, even in Shakespeare's own lifetime, were starting to be released that referred to people who were disabled as as having certain rights. It was not a widely recognized social identity, but it was starting to, to form. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. In Shakespeare's plays like Richard III, his Henry plays, and even in Macbeth, Shakespeare writes about medical disabilities and physical deformities like a hunchback, madness, blindness, and being lame. We can tell from these references that disability was present in Shakespeare's lifetime, but what exactly was the understanding of what a disability meant for a real person in Shakespeare's lifetime? In order to understand the reactions of society, whether accommodations were made for disabilities, and what those accommodations might have been, along with how exactly organizations like Bedlam Hospital, which was created for a house for the insane, how does that fit into our understanding of the references towards things like monsters and hunchbacks that we see in Shakespeare's plays? In order to understand this part of Shakespeare's life, we're sitting down today with Jeffrey R. Wilson, author of Richard III's Bodies from Medieval England to Modernity, Shakespeare and Disability History, to examine how understanding 16th century medical history helps characters like Richard III make more sense when we see them on stage. Jeffrey R. Wilson is a Shakespeare scholar at Harvard University. He is the author of three books, Richard III's Bodies from Medieval England to Modernity, Shakespeare and Disability History, that was published in 2022, along with Shakespeare and Game of Thrones and Shakespeare and Trump. You can find links to more of Jeff's work and links to his publications in the show notes for today's episode. Hello, Jeff. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life. Hey, how's it going, Cassie? Great to talk to you again. Wonderful to have you here. I'm excited to dive into this topic and look at disability for Shakespeare's lifetime. Specifically, I want to kick off with the word monstrous. I know that this term gets used to describe people with disabilities in Shakespeare's lifetime, but I wonder if it was intended to be insulting, or was it just a term that applied broadly to any physical attribute that was unusual or perhaps atypical? Yeah, so... Monstrous then meant something different than what it means now. The short answer to the question is, yes, it was meant to be insulting, but in, in some various different ways. So there's this moment in Henry VI, part three, where 
Richard has his first major soliloquy, and about halfway through it, he says, Am I then a man to be beloved? Oh, monstrous fault to harbor such a thought. So this line comes after about 10 lines describing Richard's physical disability, but the word monstrous here doesn't refer to Richard's body. The word monstrous here refers to this idea he has that he believes is a fallacious idea. And Catherine Shop Williams has done uh, some really nice work on this, an essay called Demonstrable Disability, where she talks about the curious tendency of disability rhetoric to describe something different than physical bodies. And, and so a little bit of what's going on here is that the the idea of monstrosity developed initially with reference to physical disability, but then it kind of gets in the air in the culture and it's used as an insult without necessarily reference to physicality. It could be just someone is, is acting in horrible ways. Uh, a little bit later in part three of Henry VI, just before Richard murders Henry VI, King Henry gives this really long litany of what in the early modern age were called prodigies. So he says, the owl shrieked at thy birth, an evil sign, the night crow cried, a boding luckless time, dogs howled, hideous tempest shook down trees, and, and on and on. Uh, and then he calls Richard an undigested and deformed lump, not like the fruit of such a goodly tree. Teeth hast thou in thy head when thou wast born to signify thou camest to bite the world. So Physical disability gets lumped in with the rest of these what are called prodigies because the idea was that these things are defined not by what they are, but by what they're not, which was understood at the time as natural or the normal course of nature. So there's a few different words we want to think about here. So, so monstrum, the Latin word monstrum from monere to warn. So monstrosity uh, was seen as a, a warning. Uh, this is an etymology that the Roman rhetorician Cicero explains several times. And then prodigies are, are formed from Latin word that means to, to say forth. So prodigies were, were kind of opportunities to speak about the meanings of these things, that they, they foretold future events that were going to happen. In the Middle Ages, these kind of classical Greco-Roman ideas get you know, uh, wrapped up in a Judeo-Christian celebration of a just and good God. So the question for St. Augustine and St. Isidore was, how do we explain these what seem to be disruptions of nature um, in light of an all-powerful, omniscient, and, and uh, perfectly moral divinity? And, and their conclusion was that these, quote, monsters are not abominations of nature, but they are indictments of the way that we understand the world, that the fallible human intellect can't take account of the glory of all of God's goodness uh, with our limited sight. So all of these conversations get kind of wrapped up uh, over the course of the Middle Ages in the, the 16th century. So about 20 years or so before Shakespeare starts writing his plays, a French surgeon named Ambroise Paré writes a book called On Monsters and Prodigies. And he makes a distinction. It wasn't held fully at the time, but he makes a distinction between monsters for what today medical doctors would call physical abnormalities, which often lay people refer to as just people with disabilities, and what, uh, so that's monsters, and then prodigies he thinks of as total disruptions of nature, such as a woman who gives birth to a snake. So, so these, these concepts are all getting formed, and, and they're fluid, and, and they're tossed around vaguely to mean something that doesn't feel right, given this person's understanding of what nature is. 
Jeff's book identifies posters that announced, quote, monstrous births. Jeff, what did these announcements look like? Where were they displayed? And why were the births of people with disabilities given this kind of attention? Yeah, so uh, Alan Bates is an author who's uh, identified uh, that, you know, atypical births were everywhere in Renaissance England, from from these broadsides that you're talking about um, to books and, and journals. So Shakespeare describes some of these posters in Macbeth when he has, toward the end of the play, uh, Macduff threatens Macbeth, quote, will have thee as our rarer monsters are painted on a pole and underwrit. Here you may see the tyrant. So these were kind of like early modern newspapers, um, you know, single sheets that they were cheap to make. They were cheap to print, easy to buy about a penny a piece. They could have advertisements. They could have propaganda or laws that were newly created. They could have news on a, a local or a national level. So people would kind of buy them. They would pass them around with their neighbors. They would hang them on, on their walls. And these monstrous birth posters were kind of a genre that emerged, you know, that kind of there was a big flurry of them starting in the 1560s. And they're they're really, they're kind of a, a collision of theology and medicine. And so the, the posters, they, they usually have four parts to them. So there's usually a, a title that advertises something as true and monstrous. So some of them are, are a description of a monstrous pig, the witch was pharaohed from Hampstead, or the true description of a monstrous child born in the Isle of Wight, or the form and shape of a monstrous child born at Maidstone in Kent. So they would start with this, this kind of you know clickbaity title, and then they would give a, a visual representation of what this quote-unquote monster uh, looked like. Um, they could have been humans, they could have been animals, but there was a, a visual representation. And then there were two additional pieces. First was a prose description of kind of the facts of the case of, you know, in Maidstone on such and such a date, this person was born, here are the conditions of the parents, here are is a description, um, sometimes rubbing up against even a, a kind of medical description of the person who was born. And then the final piece of these posters would be a, a poetic interpretation in verse of the meaning of this anomalous birth. And, and, Often that meaning was read as the sign of an angry God who is sending a warning to a wicked, iniquitous society that he's angry with them. Sometimes it was society in general. Sometimes it was specifically incestuous parents were, were thought that their sins were, were brassed out in human form in, in these children who had birth anomalies. The scientific, the medical reading was kind of cooperating with the, the theological reading without really too much of a sense of tension there that that these two discourses, which sometimes come into conflict, were, were sort of both firing full blast on these posters. It sounds a whole lot like tabloid magazines that you see when you're in the checkout line at the grocery store of these like fantastic titles that are just way overblown. I mean, I, I, I like to think the tabloid magazines were a new thing, but it sounds like Shakespeare had them as well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Given the perspective on disability held in early modern culture, was the famous deformity of Richard III in Shakespeare's play a reflection of the real Richard, or was this feature given to Shakespeare's character as a parody display of a morally monstrous person? Yeah, so about 10 years ago, in 2012, archaeologists discover the historical Richard III skeleton and confirms his physical disability as historical fact. So the, the Tudors 
didn't invent Richard's disability, but they did exaggerate it greatly. So the, the skeletons show signs of scoliosis, meaning a sideways curvature of the spine, perhaps uneven shoulders, but not kyphosis, which is the medical term for the outward curvature of a spine, what Shakespeare eventually called a bunchback. And the tutors also treated Richard's physical abnormality as a birth condition when, in all likelihood, the doctors who examined the skeleton suspect that Richard's scoliosis was adolescent onset, meaning it didn't surface until his teenage years. But then during Richard's lifetime, there are a, a few historians who kind of favorably depict Richard, none of them really mentioning his his body too much. Some say he was maybe on the smaller side, but not, not really much discussion of it. But then after the Battle of Bosworth in 1485, when Richard's political enemies take the throne, the historians who now work for the newly crowned Henry VII, who had previously worked for or in Congress with Richard, need to make amends for being sympathetic to Richard. And so they start to stigmatize Richard's body. By the time that Richard got to Shakespeare, Richard III had already been through about 100 years of having his disability demonized and mythologized by the royal Tudor propagandists like Thomas More and Edward Hall. And so then Richard first appears in, in Shakespeare's plays in a couple of brief scenes at the end of 2 Henry VI. Um, I, I think of it kind of like, you know, when you go see the superhero movies and, and there's a post-credit scene where kind of the villain in the next film shows up just at the very end to, to kind of get us excited for the sequel. So that's sort of what happens toward the end of 2 Henry VI. And Richard then goes on into part three of Henry VI. And, and for the first half of the play, he's just kind of the, you know, the Tudor villain of lore, the demonized Richard III. But then uh, in act three, scene two, Richard turns to the audience and he starts speaking to us in soliloquies and asides. And he, he gives voice to his torment and his inner struggles and, and his anger and his ambition, his irreverence and his plans to deceive, betray, and kill all of his own family. So it's really the first time that anyone had suggested what Shakespeare did in that, that first major soliloquy from Richard, that someone who is treated as the Tudor historians treated the historical Richard III, that if someone lived their life and that, that they were treated like that because of the innate condition of their body, that that person would have their own opinions about their body and would develop, you know, mental characteristics because of that. So I think it's, it's probably fair to say that Act Three, Scene Two of Shakespeare's Henry VI, Part Three, is the first modern representation of physical disability, where we kind of get the inner world of a disabled person played out for us for the first time leave it to Shakespeare to give us that for the first time. <laughs> In the 16th century, what was the cultural understanding of the relationship between physical deformity and the causation of disability? I know you said the general thought for the tutors, or at least the general credit for Richard's disability was a birth defect, but did people like Shakespeare believe that a disabled person was at fault somehow for their condition? Because obviously we know Richard wasn't actually born with his deformity. He developed it later. So where where was the definition for causation assigned? Yeah, we, we could have a, a long conversation, right, Cassidy, about causation in the 16th century. <laughs> <laughs> yes, could you please sum up that entire <laughs> section of history for us, please? <laughs> So that French surgeon, Ambroise Paré, that I mentioned, he gives in that book of Monsters and Prodigies, he says there are 12 causes for 
physical deformity. And he goes on to list all 12. The first two and the last two are basically supernatural causes, that this is traced back to the will and oversight of a providential god. But the middle eight causes all get into some really pretty specific medical terminology. So again, the theological and the scientific were were operating both at the same time. More generally, there's there's a big contradiction in the 16th century between two discourses with respect to kind of the, the causation of disability. So on the one hand was monstrosity, which we talked a little bit about, that kind of superstitious claim that babies born with physical anomalies were signs of God's wrath. And in that discourse on those those posters, the broadsides, actually, there was a little bit of an internal debate about is the child guilty or is the child guiltless because it's a sign of some larger social iniquity. And by the time we get to Shakespeare, the conclusion was pretty much that, that, that the child was guiltless, that, that there's no, you know, immorality on the child's part, because of course, it's a, it's a, adorable child, right? How could it be guilty of of anything? But it's the society, it's the parents that their guilt has resulted in this physical anomaly. So that's a case where there's starting to be a break between the physical condition of the person and the, you know, what sometimes we might call the inner or the ethical behavior of this person. There's a, a, a separation that's happening there. Contrast that with this other discourse called physiognomy. So physiognomy, which goes all the way back to the Greeks, it's a Greek term that literally means recognizing natures, is an equally superstitious <laughs> discourse. It's the, it's the claim that inner essences, souls, essences, you know, realities can be read through external appearances. And so physiognomy is a discourse that's operating to to help explain why it is that so many people in Shakespeare's world or in Shakespeare's play look at Richard and believe that they can read this person's ethical capacity on the quote-unquote inside by looking at his physical body, the quote-unquote outside. But you can see that that the, the, the contradiction between monstrosity in which there's a guiltless person in question and physiognomy in which, you know, some uh, anomaly in body always pointed forward or inside to some uh, anomaly in soul or behavior. These two things uh, uh, clearly jam up against each other and, and, and can't be reconciled, really. In his book, Jeff points out that the term disabled was used to refer to individuals who had impairments and to describe people with a recognizable social identity, disabled people as a phrase, from about the 18th century onwards. Jeff, for Shakespeare's lifetime, what was the terminology used to describe someone with abnormal physical or mental traits? Would the word disabled have been used in this way for Shakespeare's lifetime? Yeah, it was it was starting to be used. So today we have this social identity of disabled people, people with disabilities, which if Cassidy, you and I kind of use that phrase back and forth, we have a a general sense of the people, the various kinds of disabilities that would fall under that category. And for, you know, good political reasons, that category has emerged to, you know, create laws uh, for social fairness, uh, inclusion, et cetera. That social identity didn't really exist in Shakespeare's time, though it was starting to form. So the word disabled, disability, was used in three senses. There there was 
One was a, a legal sense of if someone was not able to perform an, an action, then that person was said to be, uh, you know, disabled. Uh, second was a just kind of a general conceptual sense of if if I couldn't do something, for example, I can't fly, then I, I'm disabled from flying. Uh, and then third was this nascent medical sense of someone who had a physical impairment or a mental impairment that impeded, disabled them from performing some sort of action. So these words were starting to be used. Laws, even in Shakespeare's own lifetime, were starting to be released that referred to people who were disabled as as having certain rights. It was not a widely recognized social identity, but it was starting to, to form. Much more common, though, was that people were addressed by the specifics of whatever condition it was that that they operated with. So someone would be, you know, blind or someone would be mad or someone would be lame was a, a term that they frequently used for physical disability. And so um, whereas today for political reasons, we we um, have this social identity that, that collects people together for reasons of solidarity and, and political efficacy, it, it was dealt with much more on a kind of condition by condition basis in, in Shakespeare's time. So you mentioned that disabled could apply to someone that had a physical inability to perform a certain task. And I wonder if that means disabled individuals for Shakespeare's lifetime, were they expected to participate fully in society at the same level as their more able-bodied counterparts without any kind of assistance? Or were there accommodations made? Like we have wheelchair ramps today or service animals that we allow into places animals might not otherwise be allowed? Are the, were these kinds of exceptions made for Shakespeare? And if they were, can you give us some examples? Yes, there, there were accommodations made, but in, in medieval England, there wasn't, it wasn't systematic or centralized in, in the way that we think of the Americans with Disabilities Act or something like that. So disability was often addressed by local communities, families, which actually led to quite a bit of integration in daily life for people with disabilities. So that there's a whole lot of examples of you know, a blind baker or a deaf shoemaker or someone who had a disability that, um, you know, is gainfully employed and, and a full member of society. Medical care was expensive. So wealthy folks might seek out treatment, but most accommodations were just sort of created on the fly. So, you know, you you took a shirt that you had and you made a sling for your leg or something like that. People with disabilities often sought out charity. So sometimes that would come from churches. Sometimes that, that was out on the street. But yeah, th- there was a lot of integration um, then as now of people with disabilities. So you, you can look at, you know, people in King Henry VIII's court. Uh, his his fool, Will Summer, is thought to have had a learning disability, was, a, a, you know, fully integrated member of that court. The painting Las Meninas shows folks with dwarfism. I think in, I want to say 1572 or so, there's there's a Vagabond Act that does start providing state support for people with severe disabilities. But the, before that, that, I guess that was really kind of the start of, of, of some sort of system of offering, you know, uh, accommodations for folks with disabilities. I've read about there being potentially specific hospitals or even homes dedicated to the care of those with severe disabilities for Shakespeare's lifetime. Were these in existence when he was writing these plays? Yeah, so so kind of because of what we we were just talking about. So disability was in this process of becoming heavily institutionalized and and 
Um, one place to look for this is Macbeth, right? Where toward the end of the play, we see the the medicalization of madness that was in its infancy during Shakespeare's time. So as we get deeper into the 16th century and there's this kind of disenchantment of the world that is happening with the so-called the autumn of the Middle Ages, madness starts to be seen as a problem associated with the the brain and with its mental processes, as well as a problem that required an institutional solution beyond that of the church. So by the 15th century, that property outside of London that's known as Bethlehem, which we take our term Bedlam from, it had transformed from a hostel for pilgrims and, and poor folks into a hospital for the insane. So this is kind of what we see late 15th century, 16th century is really the precursor to what Michel Foucault called the great confinement of the insane in, in European facilities. And, and he focused on the 17th and the 18th century. So yeah, the, I mean, the, the social life of People with disabilities was, was closely bound up with poverty. So there were almshouses and, and monasteries. And with, in the middle of the 16th century, the dissolution of the monasteries from Henry VIII, some disabled people became homeless, meaning that they became more visible. They, they were out on the streets more frequently, which is one of the historical events that, that kind of led to some of these social and, and legal changes that we're talking about. Was it unique of Shakespeare to portray his title character with a disability, or are there other instances of disability we see displayed on stage for the 16th and 17th century? Yeah, there, there are, there's tons of them. So there's Diogenes and Lily's Compass, uh, that's from 1584, Amorphous and Johnson's Cynthia's Revels from 1600, The Cripple and Haywood's The Fair Maid of the Exchange, 1607. Zoilus and Beaumont and Fletcher's Cupid's Revenge in 1615. Vulcan, so the, the Roman character, uh, appears in Lily's Sappho and Fow, 1584, and Haywood's The Brazen Age, 1613, and Haywood's Love's Mistress, 1636. Thersides, who is the first physically disabled character in European literature, appears in Nicholas Udall's play called Thersides in 1562. He's in Shakespeare's Troilus and Cressida and Haywood's The Iron Age in 1632. And then Richard III is, is sort of the key English example, and, and he's in a series of plays um, before Shakespeare, The True Tragedy of Richard III in 1591, then in Shakespeare's first tetralogy, which runs kind of 1590 to 93, Haywood's Edward IV, 1599, then Johnson had a lost play called Richard Crookback from 1602. So, so I, I think then as now, it's the case that Disability was was everywhere in society. At the same time, there were limitations on how often disability was represented on stage, and but there were also efforts that were made to make what happened on stage look more realistic to what was happening in the world. And so we we see those characters, and and those ones that I mentioned are are the ones who are kind of you know their disability uh, is thematized, is is made a part of the drama itself. And surely there were any number of actors who themselves had a disability that may or may not have been read into the character that they were playing at the time, just as as happens now in, in theater, surely would have happened then. This is a fascinating section of history. And as you mentioned, there's a ton more to explore and look into if you want to learn more about disability and its place in Shakespeare's lifetime and how it was being represented and dealt with and responded to. And as someone who studies this section of history 
a lot. I wonder if you could give us some expert recommendations here of what are some books or resources we could use that we should start with to learn more about this topic? Yeah, absolutely. So so get your pencils ready. The first place you probably want to check out is the website called Pre-Modern Disability. Um, and it's also available on, on Twitter. One of the persons who runs that, Lindsay Rohavold, also has a fantastic book called Dissembling Disability in Early Modern English Drama that has a, a stunning number of cases of counterfeit disabilities in Renaissance English drama. I think upwards of, of 40-some instances of uh, disability forgeries that happen. Genevieve loves early modern theater and the figure of disability and Catherine Shop Williams' Unfixable Forms are both, I mean, uh, unfixable forms, just the, the footnotes alone in that, you could spend years uh, just learning from that. But they kind of show moments of disability in early modern drama that raise questions about acting and, and audience in the theater and, and acting in everyday life as well. Alison Hobgood has a fantastic book called Beholding Disability in Renaissance England. Alice Equestri has focused instead on intellectual disabilities, which is an, an understudied aspect of this conversation. So that's a book called Literature and Intellectual Disability in Early Modern England. Uh, Grace McCarthy has then kind of fast forwarded to modern Shakespearean filmmakers to think about how the modern adaptations and directorial decisions often mediate our engagements with uh, disability in Shakespeare's stories. And then finally, Sonia Freeman-Loftus has, has redirected attention, I think, uh, wisely from Shakespeare's disabled characters to the lived experiences of present-day Shakespeareans with disabilities, whether those are artists and actors who are adapting plays or scholars and, and activists who are responding to them. And, and all of this work is has really kind of blossomed just in the past 15 years or so. And there's so much good work that's going on still. Thank you so much for this list of resources. This is an excellent place to begin. And we will share links to these in the show notes for today. In addition to these resources, you will want to check out Jeff's latest publication called Richard III's Bodies from Medieval England to Modernity, Shakespeare and Disability History. Much of the research for that publication is what he's sharing with us in today's conversation. So stay tuned for the URL for the show notes for this week so you can find direct links to all of these places. Now, Jeff, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm <laughs> supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible. So your choice would be in addition to those. Yeah, I mean, if if I'm being totally honest here, it's going to be like a photo book of my kids, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> but... I, what I will say is is that my favorite literary work is Paradise Lost. That that I uh, Paradise Lost is is the first early modern text that I fell in love with. I, I was a senior in in college at the time, and I had a fantastic Milton professor. Shout out to Peter C. Herman, Cassie. I probably shouldn't be saying this on that Shakespeare life, but when I I just want to really enjoy literature and and have pure joy come from it, I go and read Milton. The, the man can write a sentence. <laughs> <laughs> I, I agree with that completely. And I think Milton is right up there with one of the, the greatest sources of literature you could dive into. So I think that's an excellent choice for your deserted <laughs> island, for sure. So what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? Yeah, well, uh, you know, like a good academic, I always have more projects than I have time for. But I think with respect to this material that we're talking about, a lot of this came from my dissertation, which was called Stigma and Shakespeare. And and 
I haven't kind of fully published that, and I think that might be next. So just thinking about as he was writing Richard III, Shakespeare was also working on Titus Andronicus, and the character Aaron is stigmatized because of his black skin. He occupies a similar place in the drama as Richard does. And then a a few years later, Shakespeare writes King John, where the character Philip Falconbridge, who is stigmatized because he's born a bastard, also occupies the same space in the play of someone who plays the role of the villain, but also is irresistible and is his comedy and his his appeal to the audience and who has to navigate these social dimensions of the identities that he's tagged with um, because of the condition in which he's born. So this, this movement kind of expands the phenomenon represented from physical disability, which is an aspect of Richard's body, to social stigma, which is a, a feature of the marked character's situation in life. And then Shakespeare uses this kind of system of stigma for many of his his best characters, including Shylock, Falstaff, Edmund, and Caliban. I think that Shakespeare was one of the first, if not the first, English writers to recognize that people who encounter stigma for different reasons related to disability, related to race, related to being born a bastard, they encounter similar situations in life, even if the the reasons that they encounter those situations are very, very different. And so I'm interested in in kind of uh, exploring that a little bit more and, and getting that idea out into the world. Well, it's been fun exploring the history of disability and Shakespeare's life here with you. So I know we'll look forward to hearing more about your next project as well. Jeff Wilson, thank you so much for being here today and sharing this piece of history with us. It's been fun talking with you. Absolutely, Cassie. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed our show today, be sure to let us know about it. Please drop us a rating and a comment on the platform you're listening from today. Every rating and comment helps more people learn about our show. And of course, we always love connecting with more people who like Shakespeare's history as much as we do. If you would like to see some visual content that goes along with today's episode, including archival images, paintings, and links to the resources you heard us mention, then be sure to check out the show notes that go along with the audio you're listening to today. You can find all of these extras, all of the links, and all of the images and pictures and museum artifacts are crammed into CassidyCash.com slash episode 268. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP268. That's Shakespeare Life is powered each week by the support of listeners just like you who sign up to be our patrons. Patrons allow our work to be made available all over the world without any commercials and allow us to really dive into the archives to dig up those tiny, unique, hidden little stories from the 16th century and be able to share accurate and detailed conversations about them with you from the world's leading experts in those topics. Each of our episodes are professionally produced and created for a great listening experience, and our patrons make that possible. To say thank you for supporting the work we do here, patrons get access to over 150 additional episodes of our show, not available on public listening platforms, along with behind-the-scenes extras, sneak peeks at upcoming guests, and the chance to contribute questions that we ask during the episodes. There's also a library of classroom materials that go along with our show. It coordinates with our podcasts and with Shakespeare's plays, and we pack those into lesson plans plans, printable worksheets, and even hands-on activity kits that 
you can use to take our podcast right into your classroom. The patrons area is packed with all kinds of extras for the history enthusiast, the history teacher, and the podcast fan. You can find all of these things that let you cook, play, and create your way through the life of William Shakespeare. Dive in and join us today at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That's patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That Shakespeare Life is researched and produced by me, Cassidy Cash. Our audio engineer is Gary Mayholm. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.